Welcome to the Religion and Story podcast. This week's episode is answering the question, how we got the Bible, from its earliest origins in first century writers all the way to modern translations. We'll try to tell some of the story and ask some questions about how we got the Bible and what it means for choosing translations today. I think it makes sense for us to start at the very beginning. Daniel, why don't you tell us some of the earliest matters in forming the canon? Well, I'm going to go ahead and ruin your intro, Michael, by starting with the Old Testament before the oh, first century wow. okay. writers. Go ahead. Um, but I won't, I won't say too much there. Uh, so the Old Testament is uh, being written, obviously, before uh, Christ is born, before Jesus is born. and um, But the Old Testament isn't really settled, isn't uh, canonized, made formal um, until later. Though by the time of Jesus, the, uh, the books of the law and the prophets are basically understood to be um, the Jewish scriptures, uh, they don't really have a canon. They don't have a set group of books. In fact, um, we see this in the New Testament writings. We see this by uh, Jews in the first century and the early Christians making use of books that we today might uh, call the Apocrypha, um, these sort of uh, secondary books. And so you have this sort of nebulous group of Jewish writings that are being used. In fact, it's worth noting that uh, Jewish writings are also um, in Greek, what's called the Septuagint. Right. And these uh, Greek writings are typically what's used by the first century Christians. That's what's more common. But they also represent sort of a, a different uh, version of the text. Anyways, go ahead. Daniel, is, is there any evidence that the New Testament writers are, uh, would be quoting the Septuagint rather than the, the Hebrew versions of Old Testament books? Yeah, so that's actually a, a very commonly debated subject, uh, what they relied on most commonly. Though I think most people, most scholars believe that the Septuagint is probably the primary source. Um, but we can see them using both sources in okay. their writings. And how you would know that is whenever the Septuagint has slightly different wording than the Hebrew text or the Masoretic text as it later becomes, uh, you can tell, oh, so they're probably quoting from this one rather than that one based on how they quoted it. Uh, if you are really interested in that stuff, go check out First uh, Peter chapter 2 and the passage on living stones. And Peter, he merges a lot of different quotations together and it's really interesting where he's getting these quotations from. So, all right. So, that said, we move into the first century. And the Christians are producing their writings about Christ. And they're starting this new Christian movement. Um, and uh, they're, they're using the Jewish writings that came before them. And sort of simultaneously, Jewish writings start to become formalized and canonized. So, they have their particular set of books. And not long afterwards, Christians begin to do the same. And around uh, the 300s to 400s uh, AD, we start getting councils where the Christians are saying, okay, these are our special books. And that's largely in response to a guy named Marcion, 
Uh, he's a pretty famous heretic. He right. tried to uh, make his own Bible. And whenever the rest of Christianity said, no, we don't like your version of the Bible. You took out all the good stuff. We're going to tell you what the real Bible is. You and know, so, you know, you failed in life. If for the rest of history, you're known as Marcy and you know, the heretic. Okay. <laughs> um, and so because of Marcy, we get uh, the most famous or the most important council is the Synod of Hippo. Um, and that uh, has nothing to do with the animal, just the place in Africa. <laughs> um, and they give us the first uh, listing of books that contain all uh, 66 of our modern biblical books, plus um, a few more. They actually include the Apocrypha, what is the Roman Catholic canon. And that's the first time we get all of those books in one list. Um, it's also worth noting as we move into the, the second uh, sort of era of creating the Bible and translating into different languages that the Jews uh, eventually moved over to uh, the Hebrew text or the Masoretic text away from the Septuagint um, sort of as a way to distance themselves from Christians who had sort of hmm. taken the Septuagint and said and adopted it as themselves. And it's not until you get to their reformation with people like Martin Luther, who they say, Hey, let's, uh, let's use what the Jews are using there. They seem to know a lot about the old Testament. And so that's why you have Protestants using certain books and Catholics using other ones. Um, but that gets us basically to the Vulgate and the first Latin translations and up to English translations. Michael, can you tell us a little bit more about that phase in the, uh, biblical canonization project. Sure. Now, Daniel, can I ask you a few questions before we move on? Um, oh yeah, for sure. I'm not. I'm not sure if Stephen might have some questions too. But so I'm wondering, what within the New Testament might we point to as evidence that the writers themselves knew that what was happening was uh, inspired text or, or texts that were to be preserved. Um, and, and then my, my second question is, what do you think about some of the books that some people accepted? I, I, and I might not be pronouncing this right. I think it was Her Hermes the Shepherd or, you know, some Shepherd early texts yeah. that, thank you, uh, some early texts that were read by Christians, but we don't accept today. Yeah. So let me address that real quick. Um, so yeah, I think it's fair to say that Christians knew, or these writers knew that these texts were going to be important. Um, you may be less so for books like Philemon, which seems fairly personal, um, but certainly with books like Romans. No one, Paul uh, clearly knows when he's writing this, this is not just a casual letter to this, these church friends. This is him doing theology. Um, then you get verses like uh, in Second Peter, where the author makes reference to Paul and the other scriptures. Um, mm, right. and Paul in the letter of first Timothy, where he's talking about the scriptures and their importance Though he's really referring to Jewish scriptures when he says that. Um, but it, it all seems to build up this case of they, they know something's important here. Um, how important is hard to tell what they know, but certainly the early church very quickly, uh, the two or the three of us were looking at some charts earlier we see very quickly in the history of the church um, in the one hundred in the second century AD, Christians are already looking at these books and saying, "Hey, there's something special going on here," 
and recognizing the inspired nature of it. It does take a while, like we said, for them to get all of them. Um, second, Peter specifically. And a lot of people, and I don't really want to go into this too much in this podcast, some people have a hard time with Second Peter because it doesn't really start to even show up until three, four hundred years after Christ. Um, or not quite that much, but uh, a long time afterwards, people aren't sure about the authorship of it. Um, but even then, whenever this book does appear on the scene, the Christian church says, we accept this book um, as part of our canon, as a part of our way of coming to know God. Um, your other question, Michael, I think is definitely worth addressing. Uh, there are certainly uh, levels of acceptance of all the books. From the very beginning, all the Christians, um, with the possible exception of Marcion, uh, were accepting the Gospels. The Gospels were always this sort of central um, central canon, canon within the canon. And the Acts, and then the letters of Paul. And then it got a little bit further out where they're not sure with like books like Hebrews because they're not sure who wrote it and these other uh, what we call general letters. And then Revelation is so cryptic. The early church has a hard time with that, just like we do today. Um, and along with that are some books where it's actually people are interested that they didn't make it into the canon because it seemed that the early church was just as comfortable with books like The Shepherd of Hermas or First Clement or the Didache. Um, all ancient writings by the early church, and they they ended up not including those in the canon, even though they mostly seem uh, legitimate or something that could have made it in. Uh, but we trust that the councils were inspired by God, just like the scripture was. And so we have the books that need to be in our canon. Right. And I, I think one thing that I learned later in life is is that well, let me put it this way. Earlier in my life, I thought that any ancient book that was about spiritual subjects that wasn't in the canon was therefore uh, a bad book, you know, something that was misleading in its message. That's not necessarily the case. You know, you talk about First Clement. One of the reasons why that book is not included is because Clement was not a direct observer of the things that was go that was going on. It might be spiritually uplif uplifting. It might be a good uh, a good read for any Christian today. But in order to be included in the canon, we're only wanting to put in those books who have direct knowledge of the Christ, of Jesus. And that is the central point of, of what the scripture is trying to put forward. Well, let me chime yeah. in and say, if that is how we are recognizing books that are not part of the canon... Well, we need to recognize the canon for what it is. If it, the canon claims to be inspired, and then we also know that um, everything that is within the canon is God-breathed, then we need to be asking ourselves, so uh, the Gospel of Judas, for example, is that something was uh, the author inspired when they wrote that? However, we do not include it in the canon for another reason. And so the, you could say the uh, the same thing with uh, uh, the author of Clement. Uh, was he inspired? And why would we then leave out uh, books that are, sorry, or writings that are inspired? I think it comes to faith in the early church and in God's continuing work. God did not finish his work when John uh, added that last amen to Revelation. 
but rather we believe that God is working in the church to help us uh, recognize his inspired words. I think it's also important to note here that this sort of tells us that revelation is not a purely propositional affair. It's not purely facts about God. I could write, um, if I was to write all of the exact same facts um, that Paul presents in, say, Galatians, um, I could rewrite all of that, maybe in slightly different words, or maybe just copy it. Um, That would not be inspired in the same way Paul was inspired. Maybe copying is a bad example, but restating the same ideas. But we know that these things are inspired because they do so much more than convey facts. There's something right. embedded and eternal about the inspired scripture. I, I wanted to make sure we were on the same page that the what we have included in the canon is what uh, we ca- came up with a good understanding for what in- inspired writers were and that these line up with what should be uh, part of God's word and uh, I think that uh, there are things, Michael, you were saying that they could still be good writings, but there was something uh, off about them enough that they could not be put into a canon. No, no, so, Stephen, I'm going to disagree with you just slightly. It's possible for someone to write a good book after the closing of the canon. Just because your book's not in the canon doesn't mean something has to be off about it. It's just that it doesn't meet the other criteria of having authorship or at least being accepted to be from the time of of that first generation of Christians. Now, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but it was widely accepted that the book was from that earliest time, and it was telling a message that was crucial. Go ahead. What makes one inspired and one not? So uh, there's, I think, and this is this is my opinion here. Um, it, it is, it is impossible for us to know uh, from some outside, I you know, from some outside evidence that one of these books was inspired, other than the fact that it's in the canon. We we believe as Christians that God uh, has a supernatural power. Uh, a, mirac- a miraculous gift to us that only those books that are inspired would remain in the canon. Now, so it's- that happened because of responsible Christians who knew, who took their job seriously to say, this, this is accepted scripture. This one's not. And there, it, it's not like it says in the Da Vinci Code where there was this great division over what was in and what was out. There was near unanimous agreement about these things, uh, about uh, what should be and what should not be in, in the canon. We should have confidence in the scripture as Christians because of the early uh, century uh, Christians who promoted what we know to be the canon now. I also wanted to throw in one quick little tidbit, go, going all the bit way back to the preservation of the Mosaic Law. Uh, you have to realize that the Hebrews were a um, almost a, could you call them a proprietary uh, people? Is uh, they were self-sustaining almost? They did not mm-hmm. uh, mingle with other nations for the most part. Uh, of course, uh, as you can see through the history uh, presented in Scripture, they had a roller coaster of uh, faithfulness, and to the point where they completely forgot about the law 
it went missing for however many years. They found it in the temple and they repented. And uh, this cycle may have not as been extreme at times, but they were uh, within the law, forgot about the law. But over the whole course of the Hebrew uh, span, uh, from when they were formed as a people, uh, uh, as the children of Abraham, to all the way to the time of uh, the New Testament, or time of Christ, they preserved this law, and the prophets, the letters of the prophets, those were preserved as well uh, by the Levites, and even though this was being preserved, they were not necessarily sharing it with the nations, and so it was preserved within their nation for that huge amount of time. So it's just something interesting to consider. Okay. Any other thoughts on this early period of the forming of the canon and early text? Let me go ahead and throw out one more question. I, I think I have an answer for this. Um, what is the earliest uh, manuscript or piece of the of biblical writing that uh, archaeology has found to this point. A am I correct? Physical evidence Go of... No, like an actual piece of writing. Um, I believe the answer is 120 AD, a, p a fragment of John has been found. So, yeah, P52 is a fragment oh, right. from the right. Gospel of John, um, which is interesting because Go Gospel of John is thought to be one of the latest books written, so that is somewhat encouraging. Helpful. Um, but uh, the date, people like to focus in on a certain date um, as like the center of it. But the, this, the range d is a little bit wider for full transparency. It's like 100 AD to 200 AD. Um, so there's a range. But yeah, like 120, I think, is when people will think we had to put some weight on it. We'd say this is the most likely. Right, right. So that, that's pretty early. And um, clearly there has to be layers of transcripts or manuscripts before that. Um, and so that tells us, yeah, that's not long after they're being written. Um, so that does give us a great deal of confidence. Yeah. I've always been one that thought that all of Scripture was put together before 70 AD, before the fall of the temple. Um, I, I don't, you know, base my faith on that. I'm, I'm okay with uh, the ideas that some of, some books came along later, but uh, these are always interesting questions for, for Christians to think about. So let's go ahead and move into the big middle, uh, covering everything from beyond those first centuries uh, to more modern day translations. And, and we won't get to the modern translations. I know we'll cover that at the end. I, I think what, uh, what our listeners uh, should think about is, is after the canon is formed, how does the Bible uh, not necessarily develop after that, but how is it used from that point on? Um, the next, once you have the Bible uh, put together in, in the form that we think of it now, the next step is to is to move the Bible to all peoples uh, to to try to make it accessible to people around the world. Now, Christians have not always done a good job of that. But early on, one of the goals of Christians was to get the scripture, which was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, into the languages of the people. And early on, that language was Latin. Uh, the early Latin versions 
uh, are dated sometimes to about uh, 150 AD. The old Syriac version is is called the the Old Latin version. But perhaps the more popular version of scripture that most people would think about is the Latin Vulgate, uh, translated by Jerome around. I say around, but it's a very specific date. 384 is when <laughs> most people would say that, that Jerome translated the, the New Testament around that time. Uh, the Vulgate was used as the, the, the original authorized version for hundreds of years. Uh, as, as the, the Catholic Church later on would continue to use the Latin version of the Bible for uh, for public worship purposes for, for hundreds of years. And for many years, that made sense because Latin was the language of the people. Because of the spread of the Roman Empire, the influence of Latin was able to allow the Bible to uh, be used by many peoples across many lands, even though that might not have been their first language. Now, perhaps what we might care a little bit more about is uh, is... English versions of the Bible. If if our listeners our listeners might think that the King James is uh, was the original English version of the Bible, uh, I've heard the joke before that if the King James was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Uh, no, the King James version came around in 1611. That's that's the the date that uh, that it was authorized and 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 put out. Uh, so it's been around for about 400 years. However, I that English was in King James's lifetime. Correct. Uh, yes, the the King of England. Yes. yes, the King of England, King James, was actually you know at, uh, authorized it. He uh, sponsored the translators to come together to to put together this translation, and and it's for the most part, it's it's what we use today. Now uh, there have been updates to it. And I, to be honest, I'm not a King James user, so I'm not familiar with, with the different updates that are used. Obviously, there is the new King James Version, which is an English uh, update of the, or, you know, the original King James, 1611 King James Version. And there's been updates in between, but uh, that's neither here nor there. What I would like for us to talk about is some of the English translations in between. Um, and for the record, for our listeners, I'm using a book called How We Got the Bible by Neil Lightfoot. Uh, it's an excellent resource, pretty easy to read for anyone that's interested. So, uh, one of the earliest translations into the English language actually goes all the way back to the 7th century. So back in the 600s, uh, am I getting that right? Yeah, the 600s, uh, Cademan, you might have heard, I believe there's a, ba- a band called Cademan's Call. They're named after this guy. Cademan uh, originally translated some of the uh, Psalms into uh, into verses that that people could sing together. Uh, uh, Adhelm, uh, excuse me, Adhelm was the one that did the Psalms, and, and Cademan did some smaller sections of Scripture. So this is back in the in the six hundreds and seven hundreds. Very early on, small portions of the Bible were being translated into English, but the translators that we most associate with bringing the Bible into the English language are John Wycliffe and uh, William Tyndale. Uh, to this day, you've probably heard of Tyndale Publishing, named after uh, William Tyndale. Tyndale was a student of Erasmus at Cambridge, 
a very old university. He had gone there to study Greek, and he made it his goal fairly early on that he wanted to translate the entire Bible into English. And uh, perhaps one of his most famous quotes is one that he, he gave to his opponents, those who didn't believe that he should translate the Bible into English because they believed that the Bible needed to be only studied in Latin by experts, that the people couldn't be trusted uh, with reading the Word of God. Here's the quote that Tyndale said. <clears throat> he said, If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow shall know more of the Scripture than thou dost. You know, Tyndale is, is going against his critics, saying that you think that you control the Scriptures when in fact... I want to make it popularized so that anyone can read it. Now, as we look to our modern world, one of the things that we uh, should be thankful for is not only are we blessed with English translations, but the chief driver of literacy across the world has been the Bible and people's desire to read the Bible. And I think that this traces back to Tyndale, putting the Bible into the language of the people uh, not only in, increases our ability to to get to know God, to uh, better our spiritual life, but it's just better for society for people to have something to read, and the Bible is often driving that. And Michael, uh, I think it's yeah. worth uh, mentioning just real quick that um, according to people who study language, the only uh, thing that has helped develop the English language, uh, bringing it from Old and Middle English to Modern English more than Shakespeare is the King James mm. Bible. So I think that's worth mentioning. Right. Also, right. I enjoyed your uh, the Old English uh, shade throwing from Tyndale in that quote. Was, uh... <laughs> well, so T Tyndale's story uh, finished or ended with him being killed for his work. Uh, he was Im imprisoned many times, uh, but he, he pressed he pressed on. And what we see is that Tyndale ended up finishing his translation into English of the Bible around 1535. That's in between different imprisonments as he was going against the Catholic Church at the time. In 1536, after spending months in prison, uh, he ends up being uh, killed. For his belief, he's, he's strangled and burned at the stake, and his last words were, "Lord, open the the King of England's eyes." And so this this prayer from his deathbed, uh, his prayer while dying, was that not only would would the gospel continue to be spread, but specifically that the governing powers would repent for what they were doing. Of course, that was. About 80 years later, after Tyndale was killed, but 80 years later, the king himself, you know, commissioned the King James Version. It's, it's commonly used to this day. Now, ironically, the translators that, uh, that worked on the King James Version heavily relied on Tyndale's version. So next time you see your friend reading the, the new King James, the King James Version, you should tell them that you only read the authorized Tyndale version, the ATV, for uh, for those who want, who want to call it that. They will not laugh, but no, okay. You can yeah. you can enjoy saying it. You'll get the joke. That's what's important. But tend if you're thinking uh, if you're wanting to thank someone for the English translation, 
more important than King James is William Tyndale. Uh, perhaps the most the most uh, important Bible of this era was the Geneva Bible, which came out in 1560. Uh, it was widely published, and I believe it's the Geneva Bible that was the first book printed in the Americas. So when the pilgrims came over in 1620, they brought along a printing press with them, and the very first thing that they printed was the Geneva Bible. Um, several, uh, there are say several. There, there are some number of copies of that that are still available to this day. Um, and so it's a collector's item. I have one page of it on my wall that I got from Grandpa. That's pretty cool. Um, question, Michael, and Stephen may uh, say some about this when he's talking about modern translations as well. But uh, what sort of issues do you see? If maybe I hope you don't see any issues, but how would you address people find a problem with uh, the change from older, more sacred languages. Obviously, it had been changed at least once to Latin um, from the Greek and Hebrew before, Um, as compared to like religions like Islam, where the the book is only inspired in the original language. Right. To to our listeners who might not know, uh, someone who practices the Islamic faith would tell you that, yes, you can have a translation of the Quran, but it is only holy when read in its original Arabic. Sadly, sometimes I feel as if we Christians today fall into the same trap, that we think that there's something holy or inspired in the version that we use or in the, in the translation or the language that, that, that we're putting it into. Yes, we should be very clear that we are trying to keep the version, or excuse me, we're trying to keep the Bible as close to the original text as we can, but we need to know that there is nothing sacred about our translations. There's there's nothing about you know this one point in time when a translation comes about that needs to be preserved for all time. It might be easier to memorize something in the King James with the more poetic, flowery language that it has, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the one that we need to use for the rest of our lives. Uh, Likewise, the, the Catholic Church uh, had this issue where they depended on one version, one point in time as the time that should, should remain, and uh, it caused much division and cost Tyndale his life. Likewise, churches shouldn't do that today, thinking that there's only one version that should be used within their congregation. In the Catholic Church's defense, they have since abandoned that, where the Vulgate is Good. no longer there. Now, was that Vatican II or... Yeah, Vatican when, II, which was so in the 1960s. Yeah, yeah. Return of the Pope, Vatican II, yeah. Um, so I think that might be a good segue to talking uh, about the modern translations, because our listeners are probably thinking, that's good and all, thank you for the history lesson, I have 50 different versions <laughs> that I can go pick up from any Lifeway bookstore. What do I need to be looking for? Um, Big margins. Yeah, you want to be able to take notes. That's that's the main thing. Uh, No, so Daniel mentioned uh, that, or maybe it was you, Michael, that the Bible is written and from came from three different languages: Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Um, And so the Septuagint, as Daniel mentioned, that was written in Greek. Now. some listeners may know this already, so uh, 
forgive me, but for those that don't, uh, your modern-day Greek that is spoke in the country of Greece is not the same Greek that uh, the Bible was written in. It was written in Koine Greek, which is a certain dialect, and so uh, it is not spoken uh, anymore. And so to be able to translate from Koine Greek to whatever language the modern-day reader is reading in, uh, you're going to have to go and learn that language, its uh, alphabet, and then uh, put together the words and then search for the meaning that Koine Greek had in the time that it was written and uh, what the message was to that audience. And so uh, if uh, one word has multiple meanings like we can see in uh, modern day English, then you have to decipher uh, from the language that uh, what is this word meaning in the context of the scripture? A, a few other uh, interesting things. Uh, the uh, the Greek that is was written by the hand of the authors was also written in all capital letters with no spaces. So that makes it uh, that much more difficult to decipher and, it if you were and no punctuation. A, a, so, a, yes, and no so punctuation. does that mean that the New Testament should be yelled? When read. <laughs> All the time, everything was a very angry fire and brimstone message from all the people. Kidding, the kidding. Okay. So, all right. Um, but all right. So yeah, the our listeners are probably thinking, what makes the uh, translations that are available to me good or bad? And it really comes down to what is the the level of the reader. What do they need to be getting from the scripture? But also, if you were to ask me, this is my opinion, and y'all give me yours in response, that you want to be able to have a balance of uh, accuracy and readability. And Daniel, I think when we were doing our uh, email discussion earlier, you, you put it in uh, different words than that. So it, what do you guys think? What what is a reader supposed to be looking for when they are picking out a translation that is not just good for them, but uh, what God would want you to read? So the, the fancy jargon for what Stephen was just saying is functional. Um, so that's readability and formal, and that's uh, sort of accuracy or how closely it uh, approximates um, what the uh, – disciples were saying or what the the authors were saying and that's important and Stephen, you're you're already sort of getting in this direction that's important because if someone was to translate me saying uh hit the road jack a hundred years from now are they responsible for translating those exact words or are they responsible for if that idiom has been lost a hundred years from now um do they need to translate it as leave um, or get out of here, something that is a, a little bit more readable to future readers. Um, and that's the difficulty for modern translators and readability and accuracy, like Stephen was saying. See, before we give ours, Stephen, what is, uh, what is the translation that you uh, think is best? Uh, I got to get my joke in there, and you cut me off. I was going to say, less somebody named Jack thinks they have now been called to go and punch a road. Uh, Sorry, my, but, my joke right, so, was going to be that it's sad to think that in a hundred years they won't know Ray Charles' music anymore. Uh, 
completely forgettable. I mean, how many songs can you name? Hit the road, Jack. Name? And don't you come back no from, more? No, no, no. Okay. From, you said in 100 years, how many songs will you be able to name that are 150 years old that are not spiritual hymns? Uh, John Philip Sousa marches. That's all I got. Classic. Okay, so the classical music, yeah. whatever. Anyway, um, sorry for, to our listeners, we're getting sidetracked. Uh, my uh, mind that I go with, I, I have, um, I, I like the ESB just because it is a more word for word translation uh, of what the original Greek uh, or uh, Hebrew has. However, the NIV does capture the message in at least four different places, and don't ask me to give you those, but uh, there's um, especially um, concerning uh, baptismal scriptures. I think that the NIV, and I'm going to have to go and find what these are just so I can sleep tonight. Um, (laughs) There's a few scriptures where the NIV actually translates the meaning better then I think the meaning is lost in the ESV uh, for a couple times where it's just a literal translation. So I'm also an ESV user. I've been an ESV user for about about 12 or 13 years. Um, like Stephen said, it is a, it's in the tradition of a more literal translation, a word-for-word translation. But as compared to other literal word-for-word translations, it's it's newer. So therefore, it captures the English language a little better. Although, uh, before uh, about a month before we recorded this podcast, uh, Jack Lewis died, who was a, a professor at HS uh, Harding School of Theology. And I remember specifically his review of the English Standard Version. He said it was good, but he found a few flaws with it. And the best one was he said that it it translates one section of the Bible specifically like this, you know, uh, two women will be grinding in a field, one will be taken and the other left. And his understanding, if if two women are grinding in the field, they should both be condemned to hell because you shouldn't be grinding. So, <laughs> uh, uh, let me also throw in there the uh, uh, my second runner up would be the uh, uh, in a the new American standard. And, um, I, I would say that it actually is a good balance between ESV and NIV. Uh, but I would still go with either ESV or NIV before I go with the new American standard. Now, Stephen, I tossed it over to you cause I thought that's what you were going to say. And then me and Michael are going to be able to argue with you and say ESV. Um, but you, you killed that. Um, so yeah, a few, I think important notes about the different translations. If, Listeners have gotten this far in the podcast and they're legitimately looking for good translations. Um, There is a, you can probably just Google uh, Bible translation spectrum and find an image and you'll see a nice little spectrum that'll show you translations from how functional to how formal they are. And uh, like at the most formal, you'll have like the Young's literal translation. It's very literal as the name would imply. Um, the NASB is not far off, and that's part of what makes the NASB such a good study Bible, is it's it's very close to reading the Greek without having to know Greek. Um, that said, it can be rigid and hard to, um, hard to read at times. ESV is slightly better. It's it may, Basically, ESV's intention is to be just as literal while slightly easier to read. 
though that's obviously arguable as Stephen, uh, I don't think that's how you found it to be at all. Um, the NIV is really, uh, people give it a hard time, especially in our circles, I would think. The NIV tries to be very middle of the road, um, right, try to balance right. those. And I think it does a good job of that. And so the NIV, give the devil its due, um, is good. The, there's the 2011 versus 1984 version. I prefer right. the 1984, but maybe that's because that's what I grew up reading. Um, uh, a few things. When I was little, I used to base Bible translations on how they translated the uh, word for judge in the Old Testament. A lot of them, uh, including the NIV, translated judge as leader. And to me, I found that really problematic. If you take out the entire namesake for the book of Judges and call them leaders the whole time, it doesn't make any sense. Um, one other translation worth mentioning is the NRSV. The NRSV, uh, the New Revised Standard Version, is often um, called... Uh, or is often labeled as the most scholarly Bible translation. And that's because they have a large group of scholars from different disciplines coming in or from different belief backgrounds so that you don't get like a thoroughly Baptist um, reading like you do in the New American Standard. Or I don't know who did the ESV, but whatever. Um, and so you get these different ideas going on. And they really try to bring out a lot of the idioms and the sort of the beauty of the and complexity of the original languages. And that's why people do like the NRSV. Um, well, here's the thing. So the ESV is pretty new. It's been out 17 years. It was put out in 2001. Uh, both the NIV and the uh, New American Standard have been out since the 70s. And so if you're basically going to a new church, you're trying to find people to hang out with, you're going to find clicks. You're going to find your NIV, <laughs> you're going to find your New American Standard, then you're going to find your holier-than-thou people, ESVers, that right. they, they're basically the hipsters of the church thinking that, oh, I read an ESV, that makes me better than you. So you can immediately dismiss hanging out with them because what? they're just going to tell you about how they're more accurate with their translation. But you know what? When it comes down to it, they're missing the message. Isn't that right? Yeah, sometimes when I'm feeling extra proud of myself, I don't just bring my leather-bound ESV. I bring my study Bible ESV that has the big ESV across the cover just to rub it in people's faces. So. Now, Steve, I wasn't sure if you I, were discuss or referencing the actual message version there at the end. Is that what they're missing? They're missing that message? The Gene Peterson no, message. The actual <laughs> message from God. Oh. Um, one other thing before I forget, and I'll stop talking, is, uh, it, again, if people actually are looking for Bible recommendations, I'm going to put in an uh, emphatic uh, rejection of the King James Bible and the New King James Bible. Um, as much appreciation I have for those, uh, I think it is important for our listeners to know that the New King James Bible is using the same sources as the original King James Bible, or similar sources as the original King James Bible. Um, and if history or if history of translation tells us anything, we have gotten better at translating and found better sources to use to get more accurate translations of the original uh, manuscripts. Right. 
And so the King James Bible is really working with the handicap, and the New King James Bible has adopted that handicap for tradition's sake. And so I think you're better off looking at some of these other translations. Agreed. I, I wouldn't necessarily say I condemn it. I would just say, just be in an understanding of there is something better. Yes. I'm not going Sorry. To. Rejection was All a right. bad word. Sorry. You're right. Well, anyway, so, I mean, if we're but, really trying to look at the at the translations that are best, by you know playing with one hand tied behind your back you're really at a disadvantage and when you don't use or, to be honest in 1611 the sources were not available you know the vaticanus text uh was unavailable to those translators and it 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 really is important that we consider you know which translations had the available resources that are needed Right, and when I and when we started talking about the different translations that we have in modern day, I said that it depends on the reader, and you have probably noticed that we haven't said too much about the message uh, or the uh, the Living Translation, and that's if we, we three are pretty open about we do not really uh, put much value in those translations. However. If you are trying to teach a new Christian uh, and have them understand it, I think that might be an okay version to have them maybe brought in uh, to teach them with. However, if you are using that as something to, uh, as a deep study or uh, to memorize scripture, then you are cheating yourself uh, and you're doing yourself a disservice because it is clearly not the message and it can be taken in the wrong way because it's not the actual words of God. And that's uh, a good way to end up with um, all, all sorts of uh, manipulations in your own religion and what God would have you be doing so that you do need to be careful. Uh, and also just one quick uh, clarification. Um, the new King James version does include some newer text. For example, yes. they did use like the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was a very recent find when the New King James Version was coming out. That said, it it does it tries to resemble the King James Version. So and that's we can continue this discussion another time for anyone that's interested. Yeah. Thanks. Any comments on the Book of Mormon? Uh, not not inspired. Let's let's go ahead and say it was inspired by Joseph Smith. Um, anyway, yes. Uh, we'll save that for our April Fool's podcast, you uh, so you'll be ready for that. So I, I did want just one last thought. Uh, as you're looking at you know how we got the Bible and you're thinking about modern translations, I think you you do yourself a service when you use multiple translations as you're trying to understand uh, what God has to say to His people today. Uh, by using multiple translations, essentially what you're doing is you're having a conversation with different groups of scholars. You're having conversations with uh, different views on that same passage, all inspired by God. But when we read our scripture in community, uh, we, we read it the way it was intended to be read, that God's word is meant to be read by God's people together. We have an individual responsibility for that, but part of that responsibility is joining in community. 
Well, that's all the time we have for this podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to talking to you next time.